morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, January 10th, we are studying John chapter 1, verses 6 to 18. The rest of John's prologue briefly introduces John the Baptist before returning our focus to the one to whom John pointed, the true light, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Pastor Apple, thank you. It's good to be here as always. As we start today, Pastor Agrotowitz, let's talk a little bit of context in the Gospel of John. We've only read five verses here on air so far, but there's always important information to lay out for the background when we look at a text. What should we know as we prepare to look at these verses from John chapter 1 today? Sure. Those five verses are packed, by the way. And going into six, those five verses lay a foundation and even a framework in which the reader can read the rest of the gospel. So John spends a good deal of time really outlying for us who Jesus is. And that's crucial to get the rest of the book. Who is this person, Jesus? Is he just a prophet? or something else. And of course, we'll know from the text, he is a true God and true man. Uh, we'll talk about a little later on the connection between the very first verse and the beginning was the word. And what happens to that word? And verse 14 tells us the word became flesh. So by starting with a, a panoramic, really zoomed out view of things, I mean, John begins with, with the beginning of creation. And then he zooms in and it very quickly by verse six to the person of John and the, the brilliance uh, by which he does that is, I mean, I mean, nothing less than divine. And of course we confess that this is a, this word is inspired. So it is of God certainly, but by doing that, by starting in the beginning and giving the, the reader a perspective, it is going to help the reader as we go forth in this book, seeing the person of Jesus, the miracles, hearing the teaching, and understanding who exactly is at work. And it is the only begotten Son of God who is who's going forth to, to redeem a creation, a creation that is of him. He was there in the beginning. All things were created by him. And ultimately, he comes down into creation uh, to take back what's his, and really, that's what the, the Gospel of John is about. Jesus Christ, the sent one, coming into this world to redeem it by laying his life. The life that he has authority over to take up again, and that's in John 10. So that would be the context of those, those really rich five verses of a foundation. We're hearing 
who John is, who Jesus is, um, the one testified to by John. And that, that's, that's an important groundwork as we go forth in this, this glorious gospel. All right. So we are looking at John 1, verses 6 to 18 this morning. As you said, the first five verses that we read yesterday lay important theological groundwork and really do go together with these verses. So we're going to keep those five verses in mind as we look at the text for today. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's our text for today. That is John 1, verses 6 through 18. So, Pastor Agradowitz, we meet in verses 6 through 8, the man sent from God whose name was John. What does John the Apostle tell us about John the Baptist in these verses? Well, first, he is sent by God is important because we know who's working behind the scenes here. Uh, God, as he has sent so many prophets before, sends us another one. And this time it is John the Baptist. um, And he is sent to do something particular, and that is to bear a witness. And here in verse 7, it says he's bearing witness about the light. That's what he calls Jesus. He calls Jesus light. And verse 8 clarifies that the light is not John the Baptist. John is bearing witness to the light coming into the world to enlighten darkness. So this light, dark theme, we see it here. And the testimony of that is coming from the mouth of John without apology Without reservation, the text we had here last Sunday was Matthew chapter 3, where in preparation of that coming light, uh, John calls people to repentance. So that's that's certainly part of the, the testimony. If you wanted to get into the content of the testimony, it would certainly include preparation via repentance and faith in this kingdom coming in the person of Christ. But um, I don't want to uh, to mix any metaphors or anything here. Uh, Jesus being called the light, that's important because he's going to shine in the dark places, the dark places of the world, the dark places of our hearts. When darkened sinners are turned to the light, by the light, all these things John wants us to think about to get ready for. So since from God, we know the source. God is at hand here working these things out. 
And he's doing it through this great man, John the Baptist, who is preaching and proclaiming without apology, pointing people. He's doing what every good pastor should do, and that is he is testifying to Christ. Hmm. Right. And as as we meet John again later, especially in tomorrow's text, we will see him doing precisely what is described here, bearing witness about the light, not being the light himself, as is, is clear here, and as John will make plain when we hear him speak later, but bearing witness about the light. That that term witness, as it's used here in these verses, talk a little bit more about what that means, that John bears witness about the light. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, because to bear witness, yeah, there, there's more to it. it it's martyreo in the Greek, from which we get the English term martyr. And when we hear martyr, we think about dying for the faith, as we should. And so John's testimony and witness, it's its ultimately going to get him in prison and ultimately beheaded for um, accusing Herod of a Sixth Commandment violation. So he's bold, he's pointing to the light, but it is going to, it is going to cost them. And, and so for a, a Christian here who knows, who knows the story, of course, um, I don't think it's too far to see there, 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 there is maybe a bit of a warning that, you know, John is being bold, he's being faithful, but it is, it is going to, to cost him in his testimony. But nonetheless, his testimony is of the living one, the one who raises the dead the one who gives life to sinners. And so, yes, even though John is going going to die by the, the hands of the world in King Herod, um, he, he has faith in the one who raises the dead. He has faith in the one that gives life. So this testimony means life even beyond the tomb. And so for any Christian hearing this, this uh, martyr, this one testifying to Christ, there's great comfort in knowing the very, the very testimony that could get us killed is the testimony that gives life because it's a testimony who is light um, giving us life even beyond the grave. Mm, right. Those two terms were connected in the previous five verses. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So light and life go together here in John chapter one, and we will see both of those themes continue elsewhere in John's gospel. I, I notice in these verses about John that there's a, a purpose given. It, it says that all might believe through him, which which strikes me, as we talked about yesterday with Dr. Weinrich, the purpose of John's gospel as a whole. He tells us at the end in chapter 20 that, that John writes these things so that you would believe that, that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, and by believing you might have life in his name. And, and that purpose of John in writing the gospel is the same purpose that John the Baptist has in preaching, which I, I suppose, I mean, that's the same purpose that you and I and all pastors have in preaching. We want, we want to give witness to Jesus so that those who hear would believe and have that life in him. That's an important point because, you know, we want our people, we want our people to do good works. We want them to blossom with, with good fruits. I mean, John, part of his preaching in Matthew 3 is bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Um, but it's interesting that here the dominant verb is believe. And so we shouldn't lose sight. What's the point of our preaching? That people would believe. We want them to do good works and bear good fruits and these things, but we don't want to put the cart before the horse, meaning we never want to think that we can talk about and even preach good works apart from faith. That's backwards. Faith is what produces such things. Faith is that divine gift of God 
that is a fountain gushing forth, good works coming forth. And so, I mean, there's very good reason that this inspired word is bringing faith into our ears or that the purpose is that people would believe because from faith, all these good things come forth. And so we want to, we want to keep that in mind too, as we preach today as pastors, um, Ultimately, we want people to repent and believe in the gospel. We certainly admonish, we can certainly instruct and should. Uh, we should exhort people and encourage people to good works. Yeah, those are all a good, blessed things that a preacher should do. But first and foremost, the, uh, at, at, the, at the crux, the center of it all is faith. Are we preaching faith and do we have that in mind? Are we preaching that people would believe in the manner, in the manner of John the Baptist? That's right. Yeah. And, and in the manner of John the Baptist, I think is an important point, as you mentioned that recent Advent text in Matthew chapter three, where John preaches, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he preaches condemnation. He preaches judgment assuredly. And yet all of that is for the purpose that that people would believe in Christ through that preaching, which which does make John, and we will see this even more clearly as in tomorrow's text, but all this makes John a preacher of good news. He comes to, to preach consolation, as our hymns remind us. He's He is here to point to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In, in this part, part, to bear witness about the light. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I'm glad you mentioned verse 5. I mean, I was concentrating on 6 through 18. Uh, 5, 5 is important. The light shines in the darkness. And when you were talking about consolation and good news, uh, there's the gospel right there. The light that John is testifying to, that light shines in the darkness. And so when you're talking to hurting, broken sinners, dealing with all sorts of things, um, this light, here is our consolation. Here is our help. Here is he who makes us children from, from stones. That's a way John preaches in Matthew three, mm. that God can make children from even a, a, a dead stone. That's the light that John is testifying to. And, you know, forever, uh, for anyone who's hearing this, however dark and dim and even abysmal, uh, you may think your life is, there is always light as, as bad as the world may seem when you turn on the internet and you listen to the news and it's just doomsday, <laughs> you're thinking we are surrounded by darkness. Well, yes, we are very much. Uh, I would argue that, but there is a light that overcomes. It shines in the darkness. And not only does it shine in the darkness, but this, this light cannot be overcome by the darkness. So however bad. You think the darkness is, and uh, I will confess, I have been guilty and am guilty of thinking, you know, throwing up the arms. Well, what good is preaching? You know, what, what good is teaching? People don't believe the way I think they should. And we can get all caught up in thinking that the enemy really has the upper hand. And that's foolish. And we should repent because here God is very clear. The darkness will not overcome the light. So bearing that in mind, I mean, that's what John is preaching and it's, it's tremendous comfort to hurting sinners in, in a dark world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So John is not the light, but he comes to bear witness about the light so that we would 
place our faith in him, Jesus Christ, who is, as John the Apostle continues, he, Jesus, is the true light who enlightens everyone, and he was coming into the world. So now uh, the prologue's focus shifts back to Jesus. Keep John in mind, he's going to come back up in this chapter later, but we shift back to Jesus, and now we pick up the image of light coming into the world again. Take us into to verse 9. Sure. Well, you know, the true light, that the light is true, you know, should should uh, you know bring to our our mind there there are people who will claim to be the light there are people who will claim to be the christ but they are not here is the true light which really does give light to everyone and of course he's 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 pointing to he's pointing to the uh the one who was in the beginning of of the cosmos i mean here in verse nine he's coming into the world and i did a a, a word search on that term world and by far, it occurs of all the gospels, it occurs the most in John. It's an important theme, the world. And here already, by the time we get to this verse, we've heard God has created the world. In the beginning, in the beginning, the, the word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through him. And yet, this light is coming into a world he made, and yet, this world will reject the coming one. Um, he even goes to his own and they reject him. So rejection is going to happen from the very creation he is coming to redeem. And yet the rejection will not stop him from going through with the redemption and laying down uh, his life. So when it, when it talks about the world not knowing him already, we hear about the animosity between Christ and the world. For that matter, the church uh, in the world, the people of God in the world, because the people are one with him. The one in Christ theme, I mean, that really that really shines in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, but unifying us with the Father, uh, reconciling us with God, that's going to be the task of Jesus sent into this world to save it. But we do already, you know, John, John is, is not trying to hide anything. Uh, the world will be at enmity with him. Hmm. Yeah, the, the, what John says about the world here in chapter one, I think, is important for the whole gospel. As you said, John makes use of this term in Greek very often, and, and perhaps most well known among Christians. Although maybe we skip over it because we do know it so well, is the the verse that we often call the gospel in a nutshell, John three sixteen, which says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son." If we have this understanding of the world from John chapter one, I really think that makes John three sixteen pop all the more, and it strikes us as to just how wonderful and surprising God's grace actually is. When you think about who is it that God would love, well, he he loves the world. Who's the world? These people who who didn't receive him here in chapter one. Those are the very people God loves, which is a, a reminder of just how truly gracious God's grace is. He loves people who have rejected him. They don't deserve it, but he loves them anyways, and he loves them by giving them his son. Oh, sure. Yeah, Th this part this part really dashes to pieces any idea that we have done things to merit God's gracious activity in the person of Jesus. And when John talks about the world, and again, numerous verses with this word cosmos right here um he, you know he he makes it clear that the world we are at enmity with the world and even in first john 
there is much about uh, warning the Christian about loving the world and being being of the world, which we don't want to be of the world. We're in it to be sure, but we don't want to be of it and to chase it. And so I think this is very helpful for us Christian people um, to, 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 to bear in our minds, we're not going to be like the world. We're not going to be loved by the world. When Jesus talks about the world, and uh, you mentioned John 3.16, and yeah, gospel in a nutshell, right? God so loves this world. When you get to John 15, the subtitle of my ESV Bible uh, in, in, in verse 18 is the hatred of the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you uh, as, as its own. Um, but we're not of the world. So the logical conclusion is the world is not going to love you because you are not of it. Um, today, you know, Christians, you know, we, we need to, we need to keep this before us that we're not going to be friends with the world. And so trying to win the world's favor or, you know, for that matter, dressing up the worship service to make it more palatable or accepting to the world. We really have to be careful with these things and, and get it in our minds the world will hate us because the world hates Christ because of what he says, his doctrine, his works. These things are going to be offensive. Yet, our point here, um, God so loves this world, he comes into it. Jesus taking on flesh and blood. He was in the beginning, but he will put on flesh, come into this world to those rejecting him, but still give his life. And that highlights, indeed, the gracious love of God, who will stop at nothing to save a humanity who has done nothing to merit or deserve him, but he loves us so much. He comes anyways. He dies anyways. He rises on the third day. And now that's the proclamation going forth into the world still that people would hear and believe. And so even though the world is filled with enmity and hatred towards God, that shouldn't even dampen the church's uh, desire and task of bringing this good news to all sinful people. Hmm. Now, as, as John continues in the prologue, he says, you know, again, Jesus was in the world, the world was made through him, the world did not know him. And then John says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. When John talks about his own, Jesus' own people, is that another way of speaking the world of which he created, or is that a narrow, narrower group like the, the Israelites? I took it to a, to mean a narrow group as Israelites. Now, I did not consult what Dr. Weinrich would say about that, um, but it does sound like there is a distinction being made here between there is the world and then he comes to his own. And especially in John, his interaction with Pharisees, Sadducees, and with the Jews, I think what John is saying here is going to be borne out in the gospel itself as Jesus does interact with his own people um, who who are just really hostile. I mean, I, I just, I can't help but think that that's what he is referring to here, especially as we see that play out in the gospel, his interaction and dialogue with the people of Israel and how so many reject, even uh, ones who pick up stones to stone him in John 8, because that's where he says that great line, uh, before Abraham was, ego, a me. So, I would interpret that to mean, yes, he came to his own, but they do not receive him. And I also hear a crucifixion in that. I mean, we are reading this book as Christian readers who know the end. 
And I, I, I'm not sure that's off base. So we re hear a passage like that, that his own did not receive him. We also know what his own did to get him you know, out of the picture. And ultimately that's going to be crucifixion. I mean, the Pharisees, Sadducees, high priest, the whole company of theological elites. I mean, they're in on this. They want him out of the picture when they're confronting Pilate at the end. So we know what that means. So we're getting a glimpse even of that right here in this passage. But there are those who will receive him, and that's that's going to be at verse 12. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're right about taking his own as a narrower group, because I, I mean, it seems there is a progression there. Jesus came into the world that he made, but the world didn't know him. Well, maybe his own people, the, the ones from whom he is descended via Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, maybe they will receive him. Surely they will receive him. And John says, no, even his own people, those who, who most should have received him, they did not. And, and as you said, I, probably a, a hint already of the crucifixion. Dr. Weinrich made that point already in, in the first five verses that, that we see in those first five verses already hints of where this account is headed to the Lamb of God who will be slain for the salvation of the world, right there as well, that his own people, they did not receive him. They are the ones that that join in those shouts of crucify him. And so, yeah, Jesus, he wasn't received by the world that he made. He wasn't even received by his own, those from whom he was descended according to the flesh. But John says there are those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, and he gave them, as the ESV says, the right to become the children of God. John describes how they were born, but we're going to pick up those verses and how that works, what John describes on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz about John 1, verses 6 to 18. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 10th. We're studying John chapter 1, verses 6 to 18 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. He is associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. 
Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we talked about Jesus coming into the world, which he made, but the world did not receive him. He came to his own, his people from whom he was descended, but they too did not receive him. In verse 12, however, John the Apostle tells us that some did receive him. They believed in his name, and Jesus gave to them the right to become the children of God. Take us into these key verses. Right. So after talking about the rejection of the world and his very own people, uh, there are those who receive, and to the ones who receive Christ, and, and that's another way of saying they 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 hear him, they believe in him. This is very interesting language. He gives them the right, and you know, in the Greek text, you may even you may even say authority to become children of God, and that's another thing that comes up in John. I mean, there there's just so much here that gets extrapolated later on in the gospel and one being how do you how do you get into the sheepfold or how do you get into heaven if if you think of jesus being a door you can't just kick your way in barge in how you want to or how you think you should but it has to be given heaven is always a gift it's given the authority to be a child of god it's something that is given the ones who believe have that authority the ones who have been given to know Christ are given the authority to be his children. So another testimony to salvation is a gift. And here Jesus gives it to the ones who believe they have the authority. But if you don't have the authority, if it's not given to you, um, then you cannot find another way into heaven. Another strong theme in John's gospel. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Verse 13 carries that even further. Children of God are not born the will of the flesh. Another important passage. It's not the flesh that wills itself into the presence of God or does something to merit. When you are dead in trespasses, you cannot make yourself alive on your own or in keeping with John's preaching. A stone has to be made into a child. And that's what John says, that God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. The stones are not raising themselves. Uh, Good trees do not become good by themselves. This is God's holy work. And that's tremendously comforting, or at least it should be, that salvation isn't something that is resting in our hands or something that we, under our own power and volition, can begin in our sinfulness, in our darkness, and then somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit swoops in and finishes the job. No, to be a child is a gift of God, to believe is a gift of God, and to be born of the will of God, it's him, he who is doing it, um, that's comforting to us to know our salvation is in God's hands. He does it, he works it, he does it through Christ, it's not of the flesh. We don't want it there. That's a bad location. To put it in the flesh is to put it in an area of darkness, of sin, and and, and we will mess it up as we do all the time. Um, here the news, the gospel is better because the gospel is the testimony of God's gracious salvation given to us through the light who is, who is Jesus. Mm. The the way that John writes this, that those who received him are the ones who believed in his name, 
I think we can tie that back to what we were talking about earlier with John the Baptist, that the purpose of his preaching was so that those who who heard him would believe through him. So this, the way that that God accomplishes this, that people do receive Jesus as the Son of God and believe in him, the way he accomplishes this, it's through preaching, through the preaching of, of men like John and of, of pastors still today who point to Jesus. That preaching is the way by which God accomplishes this will of his to, to make people his children. Crucial to understand that because preaching, giving the word to people, this is, this is the holy relic the church possesses, the word of God. The word that John preached is a word that we uh, pastors preach. It's the word of the church going forth. And that's important to note because we can, we can despair and think it's not working, or maybe we need to, we need to add to it. Or I mentioned earlier, dressing up the worship service to make it more palatable because you know, that preaching just isn't, isn't bringing in the people like I think it should, or people aren't converting as fast as I think. Uh, they should convert and, and whatever it is going through our minds. My goodness, John preaches, he preaches. And to see God work in this way uh, should give us pause before jumping on bandwagons, fads, and putting frivolous things in the service. You know, some of the razzle dazzle just to kind of get attention and all this stuff. John is dressed in camel. He eats wild locusts and honey. He's got a leather belt around his waist. He's in the spirit of Elijah preaching. And what's happening? People are believing. People want to be baptized by him. The word does work. And we can't lose sight of that. Even in a dark world, we want the light in the darkness. And that light is always there in his very word that he has given us to preach, to teach. And I think that's comforting, again, to know that we have what we need to preach and let the Holy Spirit blow where he wishes. For now, we do what God has instructed us to do. We have what he has given us to have. And if we ever look out there and we think the fruits just aren't what we think they should be or, or the people aren't coming as much as we think they should, boy, that, that's a call to, 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 to repent for leaning, leaning on our own understanding, as the writer of Proverbs speaks of. We don't rely on our own understanding. We rely upon God and his word and the fruits will come forth as he sees fit. You got to be cautious, very, very cautious against using our judgment to determine how God is working, the speed by which he is working. You know, the fruits are in his hands. He'll do them on his own time. We have the word. We can take comfort in that word. And as pastors, we can preach that word and let the seeds blossom as he sees fit. Hmm. Talk more about the the fact that these children who are born are born of not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. The fact that this is the will of God at work, I think, is an important facet of this verse. It is, and it, it's it's hard to hear that and not think about the doctrine of predestination. At least that's my theological opinion. And predestination is always a term applied to the saints. We never want to go so far as to say something like God you know, predestining people to hell. That term does not apply to those going to hell, but it is one that is tied to the saints. And that God wills people to believe. Um, I also hear when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, another 
uh, famous mm-hmm. passage. You know, Jesus has a very interesting line when he tells Nicodemus, the spirit blows where he wishes. It is always God's work to create the child. And when it says children are born of the will of God, God be praised for that because his will is always good. And that doesn't mean we should fall prey to thinking, well, that unbeliever over there, God must not will that he would be saved. Children are born of the will of God. We hear that. Nonetheless, we are to keep preaching and and hope and pray that even those who are unbelieving would hear, would believe. And so on the last day, you, you know, we would be blessed to realize these two were children of God. Should it be on the last day? They are believing and confessing and and all these great and wonderful things that God produces out of people. So another another mark for divine monergism, the work of God to save, that it's even of his will that he does it. Uh, that's that's wonderful. That is comforting. But let's let's stop short of falling into trap of thinking. Well, if it's the will of God that people would be his children, it must be his will that there are those who are lost to Satan, burning an unquenchable fire. The text is not saying that, so we don't want to say it either. That's right. Speak where the text speaks and and there alone. Very very well said, Pastor Agradowitz. That brings us then to verse 14, one of the key texts in the entire gospel and certainly this chapter. We come back to, to the word, which was mentioned in the beginning of the gospel. Now in verse 14, we find out this word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's just stop right there. We'll talk about glory on its own. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sure. So I've heard theologians, and, and rightly so, bringing this out, they said the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And the reason why they say that is because of the verb to dwell, uh, skenao or, or skenes is going down. Um, I think I have those pronunciations right, but, right. but nonetheless, the word, the Greek term right there, it's a verb, but the short of it is it occurs all over the place in the Old Testament. And if you're looking for a place that talks about the tabernacle, Exodus and the tabernacle there, this word just keeps showing up in its noun form. It's all over the place, a holy place of God. So we want to think about this and make the connection. The word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. Here you have holiness before us, tangible holiness in the person of Jesus. Whereas in a book like the Exodus, the holiness of God was anchored to a place for his people in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Now, holiness is in the work and person of Jesus. And so God's holiness, his presence, God himself, coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ, putting on flesh and glory. We have seen his glory, the text says, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the holiness of God, the glory of God coming manifested to us in this word made flesh. And we get a lot of that theology from that word dwell. um, He dwelt or he tabernacled. Again, a word that is tied deeply to the Old Testament presence of God in the tent of meeting and certainly in other places as well. 
Right, yeah, this this verse brings to mind the book of Exodus, the the tabernacle, the cloud that comes and descends upon that, and that's how the people know then that the Lord is, in fact, dwelling among us. The same thing happens with the temple later on when Solomon builds it. So so now we, we see, if you want to know where does God dwell among his people, John is saying, in the word made flesh. He is, this is God dwelling among his people, which is... That's certainly a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, even going all the way back to to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God would dwell among his people there in the garden. And then when he you know, banishes Adam and Eve from the garden and places the, the cherubim with the flaming sword in the way, one of the ways of looking at the rest of the Old Testament, I think, is to see how God then bridges that gap to bring his people back so that he can dwell with them again. And it's all been leading up to this moment when the word who is God comes to dwell among his people now in the flesh so that we then see his glory. You've talked about that, that word glory and, and its connection again to the old Testament. I, I think as we think about the word glory in the book of John, particularly, you know, maybe we hear the word glory and thing, think sparkly, shiny, powerful, impressive. But as we will see for John, as he writes his gospel, to see the glory of God in Jesus is ultimately to see the crucifixion. That's where the the glory is fully revealed. Sounds backwards to hear it put that way. Um, yeah, Luther, I mean, a lot of Lutherans, I think, are um, in his Heidelberg thesis, they're in tune with that distinction between a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. Okay, so the theologian of glory loves the glorious things, good works, and so forth, the things that really shine and impress people. Whereas the theologian of the cross, it's gory, it's bloody, there's death, and we want to turn away, and that looks icky, and, and so our eyes and our senses want to go to the glorious things. But um, if you really want to see the glory of God at work, it's not in the works of man, but the glory of God is to save humanity, which he is going to do in the Lamb slain for our justification. And by faith in this word, we see God's glorious act of salvation in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hanging from that cross. That takes catechesis. And again, our eyes and reason don't see that, but faith does. Faith does see, faith hears and believes and trusts in God to save as he will do through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Now, I also wanted to hit too on a point you brought about bridging the, you know, because glory, holiness, God is holy, God is glorious. And Psalm 15, the word uh, tabernacle to dwell, going to show up here in, in, in some various forms, but the root word is there. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then two, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, if we ponder course we don't walk blamelessly our hearts are filled with sinful thoughts and so forth but christ does walk blamelessly christ jesus does speak truth in his heart he is the lamb without sin and so our only shot at dwelling on god's holy hill in all his glory is to be in the one who walks blamelessly in christ which happens by faith in the proclamation, in the word, faith in Jesus. Then by faith, 
to the ones believing, we have that authority to be his children, to be blameless because the sins are covered by his blood. The accusation ceases and God declares us righteous because of the sin one proclaimed by John. Right. So John then comes back into view in verse 15. John bore witness about him, which is what we've, we've heard previously, by crying out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, we will hear John speak this way in the text tomorrow when he will, we will see him identify Jesus like this. What, what is John testifying when he speaks in this way in verse 15? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's highlighting that text that Christ is not just some created being, but Christ is God, was there in the beginning. So he's taking the people even further back, that here is here is Yahweh, here is God on the scene for us. And so he's different than some prophet who just comes at a particular point in historic time. Of course, he is born of the Virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The incarnation does happen in historic time. But by this point in John's gospel, we know there's more to it, that Jesus isn't just true man, but he is true God. He was there in the beginning. Things were made through him, and now he is here. So that preaching of John is going to um, sharply distinguish Jesus from just another prophet, or a miracle worker on the scene. Right. And and even though John himself is six months older than Jesus in terms of, you know, when their birthdays were, yet John confesses of Jesus, he ranks before me because he was before me. That same confession we get from the gospel at the very beginning. As the prologue continues then into verse 16, from his fullness, that is the fullness of the word made flesh, we have received grace upon grace. And then he explicates further, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I I think this is now the first time that John has actually named him Jesus Christ. Uh, Take us into these these two verses. Sure. Okay. So in 16, the full, from his fullness, okay, uh, grace upon grace. If you want grace, you want God's favor, you have it in this light having come into the world. The law given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This should not be taken to mean the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament is pure gospel. There is plenty of gospel in the Old Testament. There is plenty of law preached by Jesus himself who just pulls no punches when, for example, he's speaking to the Pharisees. But there is, again, a distinction that John is making. Moses is known for the Ten Commandments and giving the Ten Commandments, giving the law to the people of God. It's a good law. It's a blessed law. It's God's will for our lives, and we need to keep it before us every single day. But it's a law that doesn't give us the power to do it. We always fall short. It always accuses, even though it's great blessed instruction, it is going to show at the end of the day how sinful we really are. Jesus comes on the scene not to be another Moses. He's not coming just to tell you a laundry list of things to do, but he is full of grace and truth. I mean, the embodiment of grace and truth and these things we have, you know, because he is going to go, he's going to ascend 
onto that tree and, and shed blood as a lamb slain. And there you find truth and you find God's grace, his riches, his favor towards you. And you see that in the sending of his son willing to die for you, something the law cannot and will not achieve for you. So though Moses gives this great blessed law, uh, that is not the fulfillment of the law that we see in the work and person of Christ, which is testified and foretold in the Old Testament. So um, a, a very sharp distinction between law and gospel right here that John is making, you know, to get people, I mean, we're, we're, by the grace of God, we should be thankful that in our church body, we hear the gospel and we had for some time. But, you know, I think about, you know, what, what would have this, what would this have sounded like to a Jew who's really, all he's heard is Moses. All he really knows is the 10 commandments. I think this would have been really a, a striking proclamation by John to hear now, well, Moses has given you a good blessed word, but the fulfillment of it is the fullness of God in this person, Jesus, right here. I mean, that's where his holiness is located. That's where the glory of God is to be located in the Christ, who's now going to give you his favor and his love as truth himself, dying and rising again. Um, I, I think that would have been, and, and it was for many Jews, hard to hear hard to get away from Moses, but that is, that is the glory of the gospel, which, you know, is a stumbling block to many and offense to many, but it is truth, a truth embodied in Jesus, you know, who dies to save sinners. Mm, yeah. I think, I think the way you, you point out how that a, a verse like this might be heard by one of the people of Israel is a reminder of what John told us back in verse 11, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. What do you mean, Jesus, that you are the fulfillment of Moses, that everything that that Moses wrote is really all about you? That's too hard for us to believe. We're, we're going to see that play itself out in the gospel as it goes. But this is foundational truth, that Jesus Christ has brought fulfillment to everything that the Old Testament wrote. He is here as the Savior. John's prologue then concludes in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What does this last verse of the prologue tell us? Seeing God is dangerous. Um, and in the Old Testament, encountering God the wrong way can lead to death. In uh, Leviticus 9, we have an example of that in Nadab and Abihu who offer unauthorized fire. So uh, getting into the presence of God is 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 not a safe thing. And I, I also am reminded of the text um, with, with Samson and when Manoah, that's his father, okay, when they, when they think they've encountered God, Manoah says, we shall surely die for we have seen God. And that's 1322 in the book of Judges. So Manoah had this, I mean, the right idea. Oh my goodness, we, we have seen the Holy One. We, we have seen the one who, when he descended upon Sinai, tells the people, stay away, lest you touch the mountain and die, because holiness is on the scene. Holiness is dangerous. Holiness is not to be played with and trifled with. And when I say holiness is dangerous, I, I, I want to unpack that a little bit. God um, cannot be approached on our own terms how we think. I mentioned that earlier. He has to be approached the right way 
And that is the way of Christ. That is in Christ. You can stand before him and hear the verdict of innocence and so forth. No one has ever seen God. The danger of seeing God as a sinful person is because of that. You have sin and he is holy and holiness and sin go together like gas and a match. But there is one who has seen God. And this is a testimony again to Jesus' divinity, that he is of the Father. He has seen the Father. If you want to see the Father, you have to be in the Son. Then you can see him. The upright shall behold his face, the Psalms speak, and that should resonate with us here, that Christ has seen him and Christ is making him known. And that's something else. I mean, as y'all go through the book of John, that's going to come out very clearly in Jesus' preaching, that to access the Father, you have to go through the Son. That's how you approach God. If you want to be in his holy presence, you have to be in the Holy One. You have to be a child of God. And of course that's given, we've talked about that. And John is going to, going to spend, spend time teaching us that as we see Jesus and his preaching, trying to get the people to believe rightly, to believe in the right, in the right God, um, to put it, to put it simply, to believe in Christ and to know salvation isn't from the law. It's not through Moses, but it's the one sent by God preached by John. Hmm. Yeah, so this is who Jesus is. He is the one at the Father's side who makes the Father known. As you said, this is a theme that we will see throughout the Gospel of John. The only way to the Father is through the Son. But when you have seen the Son, then you have seen the Father. When you know who Christ is, then you know who God is. And that's the, you know, on, on the one hand, to if you say it in the, the way, the only way you're going to ever know God is by knowing Jesus, that, that may sound, you know, a little frightening. But on the other hand, that also means when you know Christ, when you have seen him, then you truly do know who God is, that that you have seen him dwell among you full of glory that is there for your salvation in the crucified and risen Jesus. When you see this one, this word of God made flesh, you have seen God, you have known who he is, and you know, you believe that he is for you that he gives you life. That's what John the Baptist preached. That's what John the Apostle is writing his gospel for us, that we might believe it as well. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us today to look at John chapter 1, verses 6 to 18. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about John chapter 1 or any of the gospel according to St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.